everyone to my weird little podcast. Tonight we are talking about they, the, they, the, the satanic Whoa. panic. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, I just got possessed there yeah, for a minute. I, I said they first and then I was like, I'll just roll with it. But then I was like, no, don't <laughs> roll with it because that's wrong. Um, we are talking about the satanic panic which happened in the late 80s into the early 90s because Satan is bad, apparently. And um, we should not like him. Um, so tonight we have the wonderful Roxana. Hello. And the lovely Patrick. And the two glasses of, big glasses of wine in already. Tia, me. Woo. <laughs> um here and i hope we don't botch my story because it's actually really serious and fucked up but um uh, (laughs) um we're gonna talk about some like serious fucked up shit tonight probably um so i don't know who wants to go first Um, well i can talk about the book that started it yeah but i don't want to step on your portion does that no. make sense? Okay. So I'll just talk, I'll just try to contain it to the book because the book kind of started the whole satanic panic. Yeah. So we will start with the book Michelle Remembers. That's what I'll be talking about. Uh, so this book, it came out in the 1980s, uh, November 1st, 1980. It was written by the uh, psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder, and he wrote it with his patient, Michelle Smith. So Michelle had been going to uh, Pazder for, you know, depression and anxiety. And, you know, he was helping her out. Nothing crazy had come out yet. Not, not the whole satanic stuff that didn't come out until later. So they had been working with each other for a few years. And then in 1976, uh, Michelle has a miscarriage and she's seeing him for depression, obviously. And one of the things he would do was put her under hypnosis because she had told him that she felt that there was something she wasn't remembering, something she needed to tell him, but she couldn't remember it. So he was doing, it's a very controversial thing to do um, because even Sigmund Freud proved that the human mind is very malleable, especially under hypnosis, and that somebody could easily suggest certain things that might have happened and that will get into the subconscious of the patient's mind and they will truly believe that they have had these memories and these experiences so what was happening was pastor was putting michelle under a hypnotic state and i think the first time he did it she screamed for 25 minutes straight and then began talking in the ch- voice of a five-year-old child. Mm-hmm. As Yes. And then he started to do more sessions. And she began to recount tales of abuse. And she says she remembers uh, a party that her mother had thrown. And this is happening in Virginia, British Columbia. So this is up in Canada. Uh, during the 1950s when she was like five so she says that she was at this party and this one woman lost it and murdered somebody another woman and that the people at the party were covering up the murder of this woman uh one of the guys picked up the body and she remembers him putting it into a car and that they staged a car accident that the to to cover up the murder of this woman at this this big party where crazy things were happening 
and then the session started to get into more of like um ritualistic aspects of you know murdering babies and bathing her in like the blood and being rubbed with you know baby parts and being forced to eat human flesh and she had been you know tortured and there was you know sexual abuse and that she had been put in a cage with snakes and that it all accumulated in a 81 day straight ritual where she was forced to see and participate in all of these horrific, uh, gruesome things. And uh, that it was these satanic rituals that were being done in British Columbia uh, by her mother and by all of these other people. And they would have these rituals in a cemetery and of course, I have that written down somewhere, but then I lost it. Uh, and I, the reason why I want to get the name of the cemetery correct is because um, later on when people try to verify it, there is some holes in the story. And one of them has to do with the location of the cemetery that they had uh, done these big rituals in. And like hundreds of people apparently had participated in these rituals as well. Uh, so they would do these rituals at the Ross Bay Cemetery and they would do them in a specific mausoleum. Um, so that's gonna come into play later. So they have all of these sessions They and then they decide to write a book about her experiences with the satanic cult. And they get a, oh, what's it called when uh, the, a publisher gives you money before you start writing? An advance. They gave them an advance of like $100,000 to write this book. Uh, they write the book and then it sells for what today would be the equivalent of a little over a million dollars. So they're making a lot of money. And then uh, the psychiatrist, a uh, pastor, he kind of becomes the expert in these ritualistic child abuse cases. And uh, he's also very religious. So, you know, the Catholic Church is also backing up his, his claims of what is happening in the book and everything. And um, for a while, you know, his book was used as like teaching material for the FBI uh, for when they were looking into what you're will be talking about next. But the thing was, uh, even shortly after the book had been published, her family, uh, her, her mother had died in the 1960s, but her father was still alive. And she also had two other siblings. And all three of them completely deny what she had written in the book. And here's also one of the things that seem a little bit suspicious, or as the kids say, sus. She said that the reason why there are no scars on her body is because all of this abuse and everything ended with an intervention of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the arch, arch, archangel Michael, who removed all the scars from all the abuse and then locked away her memories so she couldn't recall it until when she was under hypnosis one of those later. is a thing and the other one is not a thing yes <laughs> so so um her family was basically saying yeah no that that never happened her father was just appalled like how could she say these things about her mother she's totally uh desecrating the the memory of this woman her sisters were like, yeah, none of that ever happened. There was no such abuse. And then you can look at the school records at the time. Mm -hmm. And during the, the period where she said that she was in that 81-day straight ritual, she was also going to school. And there were not any long periods of time where she had been absent from school. Uh, the local doctor said that there was no signs of abuse, like just, you know, regular 
kid stuff, but like, you know, a rash or a busted tooth, but um, no signs of ritualistic, satanic, you know, abuse that she had claimed that were in the book. Uh, and then the car crash that she had mentioned witnessing or the fake car crash, uh, they couldn't find any record of that happening. And during that time, if there was a vehicle accident, the newspaper was going to report it. So it wouldn't have been something that had just, you know, was not reported because it was not important. It was important during the 1950s. So that was kind of another hole in her story. Um, then it kind of came out that while she had been seeing Pastor, you know, as a patient, she she was married to somebody and he was also married to someone else. And uh, as their sessions were starting to, to finish up, the they think that Michelle started to make up something to try to spend more time with Pastor. Because once these hidden memories were revealed, uh, they spent a lot of time together and they actually ended up divorcing each other's spouses. And then once the book was published, they both married each other and they pretty much stayed married um, until he died. So that's kind of, again, suspicious of maybe this had a little bit more to do with their feelings for each other and wanting to have a reason to be with each other as opposed to actual revelations of satanic abuse and her mother was a horrible person which starting to find out that probably wasn't true at all and they kind of made a lot of money off of this um so uh that was also something else that was getting revealed um later on when people journalists were trying to interview michelle pastor would intervene and be like no no she's healed from this she doesn't she doesn't want to talk about this so he was also kind of protecting her from this getting dragged up again and it getting revealed that it was probably all a fraud but it could have also been something where she truly believed that these memories were happening because back when I was talking about Dr. Freud, uh, he said, uh, Dr. Freud said that he had taken like a group of various women, tried to hypnotize them. And they also came up under hypnosis talking about horrible sexual abuse and cannibalism and kind of like these similar themes uh, that there seems to be a phenomenon that, that happens that under hypnosis, it's very suggestible that these kinds of memories will just kind of come to people, even though they've never happened. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the cemetery, uh, another hole in Michelle's story was that the cemetery is surrounded on three sides by neighborhoods. So the kind of ceremony she was describing would have been very loud because there's screaming, there's ritualistic um, human sacrifices, children, you know, are being murdered or tortured. S somebody would have heard something. And then the mausoleum that they also had the rituals in was super tiny. The hundred people that she had said were in there couldn't have happened. But on the flip side, people said it really seemed like she believed that all of this had actually happened. So even though there's evidence that it didn't happen, she came across to the public and to everyone else as not being a liar or a fraudster, but actually believing that this kind of stuff did happen to her. And she was truly saved by an intervention from Jesus and the Virgin Mary and the Archangel Michael. And Pazdar was getting a lot of fame and recognition from people believing Michelle. So, oh, and another thing about him was he had spent some time in West Africa. And a lot of the stuff that she was describing with the ritualistic blood and cannibalism things were also common themes that were happening in West Africa and kind of the panic happening there as well. So it was again, 
suspicious that he's bringing his own experiences and kind of incorporating it into her subconscious. So I don't think he was as innocent as maybe she was. Like maybe there was this is my own theory. There's that attraction between the two. Uh she wants to be able to spend more time with him and senses he senses that vulnerability. Of course, if he's able to prove something like this, it's going to make him super famous like it did. So I think that's taking advantage of her vulnerability, her wanting to be around him um and his also wanting to be famous and recognizable for something um cuz really not discredited as as a fraud. I mean even though it's super obvious that the book nowadays you can go back and read it and it's really highly suspect but of course at the time as you're going to talk about people kind of took that and and ran with it and it created an actual panic that went on for a couple of decades and so then this is where i don't want to steal your thunder because this is where that story kind of goes into is the consequences of this book that came out the fact that so many people were taking it seriously the fbi was taking it seriously and the catholic church was taking it seriously even though it could have it was easily refuted to have been false in multiple uh instances um so i guess i'll go next even though pat's chronologically is before mine but Wait, i'll go what's pat what's pat, pat doing talking about um Dungeons and Dragons and how it is Satan's game. Satan's oh, game. Do you yes, remember that? Uh the dark what is it? Oh god, who are they? They did this sketch Dark El Elwa Wives or something like that. Dungeons and Dragons, Satan's game. Anyways, email me with the answer. Okay. <laughs> I cast magic missile i don't know i don't remember no i have blue eyes not gray eyes i have blue eyes i don't know that was this like sketch about dungeons and dragons yeah. and how we care about stupid shit like what color our eyes are in our characters yes. um his is about the satanic panic focusing on dungeons and dragons as oh okay okay well yours is more closely related to mine i think than yeah. his is like an off branch Yeah. So um yeah, we'll talk we'll get into that. Yeah. So I'm going to go I'll just go first cuz I'm already talking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about the West Memphis 3. And my story and also Pat's story were apparently highlighted in the new uh Stranger Things season. Um I have not seen it, but apparently they tap on both these stories ever so slightly. Um and make reference to them possibly. I have no idea what the references are because like I said I have not seen the new Stranger Things season. Maybe I will maybe I won't cuz I don't really watch it, but um <laughs> you know, uh so my story is the West Memphis 3. I'm going to admit I did not do as much research as I could. There's so much out there on this story. There are multiple documentaries. There is so much out there. This is a rabbit hole into another rabbit hole into a gopher hole and back into a rabbit hole. Okay, like there's mm-hmm. so much. Most of my information came from uh Kendall Ray, who's a wonderful YouTube podcaster, Kendall Ray. Um I got it off of Wikipedia, of course, cuz I always check read through the wikipedia of anything mm-hmm. before uh i start a podcast there are several documentaries out there's a wonderful documentary that hbo put out very soon after this happened called paradise lost there's also like a paradise lost 2 and a re- like a like uh remembering paradise lost like basically hbo came out with other documentaries coming back to the story with the new information out there um so i watched these one thing i will say about paradise lost is that it's it came off 
biased that these boys that I'm about to get into, these teenage boys were in fact innocent. And I believe fully that they were. However, uh, this story has a lot to it. Now, I'm going to pose a question at the beginning. I'm going to pose a question right here. So a murder is committed. Now, is a person guilty if they um, confess to the crime? People saw them there at the crime and testify that they were there. Does that mean that they committed this crime? If you say you committed it and people saw you were there, does that mean you committed the crime? No, not necessarily. Well, exactly. Exactly, because testimony is so objective, you know, it's so, so that's basically what we're going to get into is that there was confessions, there, there were confessions, there was eyewitnesses, but the evidence is almost zero that who they said committed these crimes actually committed them. So um, I actually ran very short on time on getting this together. So I am going to read through a timeline that is from famous-trials.com slash West Memphis. Um, they have a basically minute to minute timeline of what went on. And so I'm going to read through the timeline and let you all make your personal decisions on what you think actually happened. So my story is about the West Memphis Three. So September 1992, Damien Eccles, who is going to be our main antagonist, anti-hero of the story, uh, he is 17 years old. He is released from a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock, where he received treatment for major depression. Damien is transferred to a hospital after incidents at a detention center that included sucking blood from the wound of another detainee and threatening to kill his father. He is known to Arkansas's officials to have an interest in witchcraft and quote unquote Satanism. May 5th, 1993, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch are riding their bicycles on North 14th Street, heading in the direction of Goodwin uh, in West Memphis. Uh, around 8 p.m., John Mark Byers telephones the West Memphis police to report miss the, a missing child, eight-year-old Christopher Byers. Ten minutes later, an officer shows up to interview Byers. Around 8.30, Byers reported later he began searching the wooded area where the boy sometimes played in the Robin Hood Hills. Sorry, I have to scroll down real quick because this. Um, so around 8.42 p.m., workers in the Bojangles restaurant located about a mile from the Robin Hood Hills reported seeing a black male who seemed mentally disoriented inside the restaurant's ladies room. The man was bleeding and had brushed against the restroom walls. Uh, Officer Regina Minks responded to the call, taking the restaurant manager's report through the eatery's drive-through window. By then the man had left and police did not enter the restroom on the date. Uh, so, Basically, they see a man covered in blood come into the Bojangles restaurant. He is gone by the time police get there. Nothing comes of this. This is extremely important, but is treated like it is not important at this time. So uh, around 9 o'clock p.m., Dana Moore and Pamela Hobbs, the two mothers of two of the boys, uh, report that their eight-year-old sons, Michael Moore and Stevie Edward Branch, are missing. 
around 9.30 p.m., Narlene Hollingsworth, according to what she, she had told police later, so she states this later. She says around 9.30, 10 p.m., she sees Damien Eccles and another boy walking near Blue Beacon, Blue Beacon on the edge of the Robin Hood Hills. Prosecutors will later argue that the murders, uh, murders of the three boys takes place during this time frame. Uh, so her testimony says she sees Damien around this area. Uh, May 6th at 6 a.m., Chief Inspector of the West Memphis Police Department announces that the three boys are missing and that he will direct the search efforts. On May 6, 1993, at about 1.45 p.m., officials discover the body of a naked boy in a gully in a woodland area of West Memphis called Robin Hood Hills. The coroner arrives on the scene and pronounces three boys dead. So they actually find three bodies. Steve Jones, a juvenile officer and Lieutenant Salisbury questioned Damien Eccles about the murders, but take no notes in their interview. So they're interviewing Damien basically based on what that one girl said that she had seen them there. Um, but yeah, so um, on May 8th, 1993, Detective Bill Durham and investigator, Shane, uh, and investigator Shane Griffith questioned Damien Eccles and his friend, Jason Baldwin, uh, and Damien and Jason tell them they've never heard of any of uh, anything about the three boys being killed. <coughs> on May 10th, Dane, Damien, unaccompanied, unaccompanied by his lawyer, is interviewed at the police station by Lieutenant Sudsbury and Detective Burnridge. He then is administered a polygraph interview by Detective Durham. According to Ridge's notes, Durham reported that Damien had been untruthful and according to the polygraph, was he was involved in the murders. But as we know, polygraphs are flawed. But also, I want to mention here that Damien Eccles also suffered from a lot of mental uh, disorders. He was declared to be kind of a sociopath at this time. And Damien Eccles is very interesting, edgy sort of teenager who kind of says things to the media to get them riled up. And his character reminds me so much of Henry Lee Lucas, the confessions killer. Henry Lee Lucas confessed to many crimes that he did not commit. And he loved attention. And the difference between Damien Eccles and Henry Lee Lucas is Henry Lee Lucas was like 40 year old man doing this. Damien Eccles is 17. And when I was that young, I definitely said and did things to be edgy and I didn't really understand the consequences of things, you know? And there are many interviews and televised interviews with Damien Eccles where he's like, I hope that people think I'm the boogeyman. I hope people are scared of me. And it's just kind of like this goth teen, like trying to be edgy, you know? But he doesn't understand the consequences of his actions, but him saying these things, these aren't exactly helping his case. You know, if yeah. you're if you're innocent, why would you say these things? But also, you know, if there's no evidence, then you can't be guilty, you know, or proven guilty if there's no evidence. Or can you? Uh, <laughs> so May 12th, 1993, Police question Pam Eccles, Damien's mother. She tells them that on the night of the murders, Damien was home with her talking on the phone with two girls who lived in Memphis. On May 19th, 1993, Vicki Hutchinson, a, a private citizen and volunteer detective conducting her own investigation of the case, travels with Damien Eccles and Jesse Molesky. 
Miss Kelly uh, to a, an SBAT in a field north of Marion, Arkansas, where she sees about 10 young people with arms and faces painted black. So basically, I don't know, this chick, Vicki Hutchinson, basically says that she has seen satanic rituals happening. Espat gathering of witches. Of course. Of course. You didn't know that, right? So she says that she has seen Damien and uh Jesse Miss Kelly out basically doing these satanic rituals, you know. So much of this case is based on these people who said they saw things. And this feels so much like the Salem witch trials, you know, because these people just wanted to have something to say, you know, I, I've been in this mentality of being in a sort of group situation where people will make things up to be acknowledged. Um, and I can't, sorry to interrupt, but like just to go kind of tack on that, like, like kids, I think, um, I think especially younger kids too are kind of more influenced too by that, like the social aspect of it, like having the experience. Like, I remember this as a kid, like we had a fire at our school, at our Catholic school, and it really only affected like a couple of rooms. Like, there was smoke in the hallways and stuff, you know, but we pretty much evacuated pretty quick. But when the fucking ambulances and the fire trucks showed up, everyone started coughing everyone's like oh i think oh you know <laughs> oh, i think i'm the most affected by you know and it was like what's going on right now i remember thinking mm-hmm. like, what's going on like you weren't even in the room steve like what are you doing like <laughs> yeah yeah so on may 27 1983 police interview vicky hudgenson who tells them of evidence suggesting that Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly were involved in both cult activities and the murders of the three boys. Her son, who's eight years old at the time, tells police that he and the three murder boys often visited uh, Robin Hood Woods together and that at times they saw five men in the woods sitting in a circle singing songs uh, to the devil and doing what men do to ladies. So doing okay. that to the devil? Wait. They were having okay. sex with the devil. Singing songs of the devil and doing what men and ladies do. Sorry, I said that wrong. Oh, okay. Basically, mm-hmm. yeah, having an orgy in the woods. This is something an eight-year-old said that he saw. Yeah. Um so uh on June 2nd, 1993, police give Vicki Hutchinson a polygraph. She actually passes the polygraph. Hey, uh, in June 3rd, 1993, convinced by the polygraph results that uh, they had their murderers, police questioned Jesse Miss Kelly about the murders and tell Jesse that there was a 35,000 reward for information leading to the convictions in the case. In a polygraph interview, Jesse initially denies participation in satanic rituals in the murders. Detective Durham tells another officer Jesse is lying his ass off. After hours of harsh questioning, uh, Jesse begins to tell the officers that what they want to hear. Jesse Miss Kelly also had a very low IQ, though. Mm. He had an IQ in about the 70s, you know, and he, I believe to this very day, doesn't fully understand what's going on or what happened. And it's very sad. Um, So officers are troubled by the inconsistencies uh, basically in his story, I wonder why he has inconsistencies in his story and they work to shape Jesse's story to match the known facts of the case. Some five hours later, after picking Jesse up, police begin taping Jesse's confession. 
So on June 3rd, 1993, authorities appear at municipal court uh, judge to request search warrants to search the homes of Jesse, Damien, and Jason, and warrants are issued. So police arrest Damien, Jason, and Jesse. They are charged each with three counts of capital murder. But all of this is really based on some people said they saw this and that, you know. There is no DNA evidence ever gathered. Uh, there is like, there is sperm evidence that was gathered, but none of it matches these three teenagers. There is a hair that is found that, oh God, what is his name? Terry Hobbs, is that his name? He's the stepfather of one of the victims and they find his hair in the shoelace of one of the, the boys, you know? Well, and yeah, but he was also known to be abusive to his wife and son, but he's never a suspect in any of this hmm. because they've already decided that these three boys are, and this person, this black man who was covered in blood at the Bojangles uh, uh, store. I don't know what a Bojangles is, but, <laughs> you know, is never searched or looked for. That's just sort of a thing that happens, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, they've decided that these three boys are guilty pretty quickly here. So um, uh, June 7th, a state judge appoints lawyers to represent each of these boys. Uh, police interview eight-year-old Aaron Hutchinson, who tells them that he witnessed the actual murders of the three boys now. Mm -hmm. so that's what he says. Mm -hmm. um, on August 4th, 1993, Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly attend a pre-trial hearing before Judge David Burnett in Marion, Arkansas. Judge Burnett rules Miss Kelly should be tried separately. Burnett allows that uh, the state can introduce Miss Kelly's confession despite evidence that it was obtained under coercive circumstances and that the defendant could be tried as an adult rather than juveniles. So um, that happens. So basically, these boys end up going to trial. Uh, two of them end up in prison for a very long time, and Damien Eccles ends up on death row. Damn. Yeah. Uh, and this happens for, uh, they're on death row for maybe 16, 17 years. Um, let's see, jury convicts. Miss Kelly on one count of first degree murder, and two counts of second degree murder. His sentence is for 40 years in prison. He is sent to the facility in Pine Bluff. Let's see. Jesse tells prosecutors he will testify against Eccles and Baldwin in upcoming trials. He makes a statement under oath accusing Eccles and Baldwin of murdering the three, which also reminds me of the Central Park Five, where they kind of were coerced mm -hmm. to make testimonies against each other to save their own selves yeah you know coerced to make these false testimonies against each other but because they did that against each other all of them get convicted you know over something that they did not do they didn't even yeah know or meet each other until they were already in jail and they're mm -hmm. saying that they had known each other you know yeah. that's essential park five so yeah um, basically, so they all go to prison for a while, but what ends up happening is media gets wind of this. And, um, in 1996, Paradise Lost, which is the documentary I watched comes out on HBO. And, uh, this kind of starts to bring light to that maybe something not quite right was happening and people were jumping to conclusions. 
you know, about these three. However, I will say though, they did not make it, they made this very difficult. There are so many televised interviews of Damien Eccles basically being like, yeah, I'm, I'm the devil incarnate, da, 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 da. And he's like an edgy teenager trying to be badass, but he didn't do this stuff, but it's like, you're not really helping yourself out a lot, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people made false t- statements. You know, there's, there's no physical evidence, but there's a lot of people talking. Basically, so after Paradise 2 comes out, Paradise Lost 2 comes out, which is their follow-up of the first HBO documentary. Uh, the film suggests that John Mark Byers was the actual murderer who's one of uh, the fathers of the children. There's so much evidence pointing to other people in the community yeah. um, that could possibly happen. Uh, basically, the boys end up having, the three teenage boys have to go into something called an Alfred plea, which is so, I still don't fully understand what it is, but basically you say you're you're saying that i am pleading guilty but you're maintaining your innocence so yeah it's something to where like you don't want to go to trial so you'll take the guilty plea but you never have been proven guilty yeah that's the thing so yeah So in 2007, when DNA collected from evidence uh, at the crime scene is tested, none is found to match Eccles, Baldwin, or Miss Kelly. A hair found in the knot, this is what I was just saying, knot used to tie up one of the victims is found to not, uh, to be not inconsistent with Terry Hobbs, the stepfather to Stevie Branch. John Mark Byers tells the media that he now believes the three young men convicted were innocent. At a Little Rock rally, the Dixie Chicks, so many, the Dixie Chicks, Johnny Depp, Eddie Vedder, a lot of these people were already starting to advocate for these three boys um, and bring a lot of uh, media attention to it. Dixie's Chase singer Natalie Maines implies Hobbs was involved in the killing of his son and the other two boys. 2008 evidence surfaces that Kent Arnold, the jury foreman in the Eccles and Baldwin trial, discussed the case with an attorney prior to deliberation and advocated in the jury room for conviction. Judge Burnett denies the request for a retrial holding that the DNA evidence produced by the defendants was inconclusive. The Arkansas Supreme Court orders a trial uh, court judge to determine whether newly discovered DNA evidence or evidence or of juror misconduct justifies either a new trial or exonerate the three. And in 2011, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly are released from custody following a deal in which the three men agreed to admit guilt on murder charges while still maintaining their innocence innocence which is called an alfred plea Mm -hmm. in exchange for their release without parole so they are free now but they spent 16 17 years in prison because of how botched this whole case was and you know a lot of it was the town trying to put these satanist or bad kids away because you know, I think this will tie into your story too, that when people are hurting, they want to blame someone. They need a conclusion. They need someone to be in charge, someone to focus their pain and their hurt and their anger on. And these three teenagers were it, unfortunately. And I think that's really a lot of what's going on here is this sort of, uh, mob mentality you know pitchforks like let's get the monster and they decided the monsters were these three boys and these three boys 
And Damien Eccles was like, yeah, I'm the monster, come at me. But they didn't understand that even though there's no evidence, you still can go to jail. You know, they didn't understand that. And they had to learn that the hard way. And they were, they were barely, barely no longer children. You know, they're barely adults, if you can even say that. And it's just very sad. You know, there's a lot more on this case out there. You know, it's still unsolved to this day. It will never be reopened because because of the Alfred plea, technically it's a closed case, yeah. you know, and uh, it's just very sad. And that is the story of the West Memphis Three. Hey, this is David from the Piecing It Together podcast, a podcast about movies and the movies that inspire them. For over four years each week, a guest and I take a look at a new movie through the lens of what other movies we think were either an influence or connect in some other way. It's a fun, unique way to discuss films that leads to a great list of other movies to check out that either explore the same themes and ideas or maybe utilize similar filmmaking techniques including special episodes in our side series that twist the format. We've done over 200 episodes, so there's bound to be one on a film you've been thinking about and want to dig deeper into. So check us out on all the major podcasting apps and at piecingpod.com. Um, so I watched a great little film this morning called Mazes and Monsters. Have you, guys, have you seen it? No, I have not. I sent you the trailer of it like a while ago. With the the night the eighties one yeah, yeah. yeah with Tommy yeah. and like how he's all confused about reality because Dungeons and Dragons is reality because it is um, and everything. Um, so yeah, starring everyone's favorite nice guy Tom Hanks. Um, but yeah, it's it's obviously called mazes and monsters because that was the closest they could come to D without copyright infringement i guess um uh, but it's about a guy in college who makes new friends and begins to play a new campaign of D. &D. i mean i mean m and m uh seems like a harmless film until one yeah. of the kids while talking to his bird merlin thinks it would be cool to kill themselves in a mine right by the school bad writing Maybe, uh, but, but this is based on a story. In the actual movie, well, it's, it's actually, the movie is based on a book by the same name written by Rona Jaff. Uh, and Rona Jaff wrote it about this story loosely, extremely loosely, very, very loosely. Uh, but the true story is about James Dallas Egbert III. Um, he was born in Dayton, Ohio. He grew up in Huber Heights, a Dayton suburb, attending Wayne High High School. He was very smart, a child prodigy, and entered Michigan State University at age 16. Oh, wow. He majored in computer science, which totally added up, like computer science, dentistry. Yeah. That's because my brother Nerd. Mike, indeed, he was, he's a computer science dude. Shout out to Mike. Hope you're not like listening. To I'm not very smart, and I'm like struggling with playing D&D. So I'm no, not. No, you're not. Don't I mean I can do the characters, but I can't do the like. Oh, you set that logistics. bar on fire pretty well. I did set a bar on fire pretty well. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was awesome. But like logistically, with the there's a lot of forethought that goes into it. Like I didn't, really, I didn't give it as much credit as it deserved. There's a lot of stuff where I'm like, I feel like I'm lacking. Can you see me? Sometimes I feel like I'm lacking in the smarts department. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Department. The smarts department That's with the D and D and the stuff, okay. and the, so I make up by be, make it up by being impulsive and doing extremely rash things. And yeah, just keep looking at your character sheet, and you know, just like kind of think. I forget to even pull that up sometimes. You, you then I, maybe that's how. Look at your character sheet, and then make the rash choices based off that. Okay, I just want to make impulsive choices. Right. <laughs> I'm glad we took five minutes. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> anyways. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons is reality. Um, so on August fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine. James Dallas Egbert III vanishes. 
this disappearance was widely reported in the press uh, due to his participation in, in the fantasy role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons. It was seized upon by press and investigators uh, being potentially re related to his disappearance. Obviously, it became a huge story because of that. Uh, the previously obscure game uh, at this time now getting nationwide attention. So you'll see later on that this really worked out for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, not for other people. But uh, so a police search for Egbert began. The story was followed widely in the news media after Michael Stewart, a journalist for the university's newspaper called the State News, published these details. Egbert's parents uh, hired a private investigator, actually, uh, named William Deere to find their son. Hmm. Knowing very little about fantasy role-playing games, I emphasize that, uh, Deere theorized that Egbert's disappearance was related to his involvement with the Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, but that's literally all he was saying was it might be related, you know, having basic knowledge of this kid is a nerd. This is what he does for the spare time. You know, he wasn't saying yeah. he's lost in the fantasy world right now. He was just saying this might be related to it. You know, yeah, yeah. might be like, you know, this kid went, went to the same gym as this other guy who carried a knife all the time to the gym. The gym's related now, you know, because they both go to the gym, you know, mm -hmm. but because he said this, uh, the press, went crazy with it. They're like, oh my God. So it's Dungeons and Dragons fault. You know? uh, yeah, like he's a person there. Yeah. Um, so yes, this was the possibility further promoted in the news media. Um, students uh, were reported to play live action sessions of the game in the steam tunnels below the school, which oh. I first heard that, I thought that sounds awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, like, like that's, oh, okay. that's really cool. Which is kind of what happens in the movie, the Mazes and Monsters movie. They they don't find steam tunnels under the school. They find um, there's a mine that's by the school. Of course, there's a mine there. But James, so Dallas, then he gets Egbert, into so so LARPing. James Dallas Egbert, the, the the or the James Dallas Egbert of the film decides that he wants to put up a live action game in the tunnel in the mine. And okay. he actually sets up like a skeleton that <clears throat> comes out of a closet and it's got like a light on him. And, and like, he's just on the other side of the wall, but the characters like Tom Hanks and this other character, they have to like ask the skeleton questions or whatever, you know? And it's just like whole like little thing. So it's like, it's, pre it's actually pretty cool. You know, it's like- Yeah, like, that does sound it's fun. like an immersive experience when you think about it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, what it is. It's, it's, it's LARPing. Right, so. exactly. Yeah, that's what LARPing yeah. is, right? You're right. Yeah. Um, so, we actually don't know if it was reported that students would play live action sessions of the game in the tunnels, you know, but there was like people who said they did do it. Some people just went into, into the tunnels to play the game, not necessarily do live action versions of it, you know, just to go. To oh, like the sitting. Okay. You know, so it was, like I said, there, they supposedly did these live action sessions and the, the theory was that Egbert got injured during a session. And there are okay. tunnels under the school, so maybe he got injured and, you know, other people left or something. So um, the search for Egbert continued uh, unsuccessfully for several weeks, uh, during which time Egbert moved to two other houses in East Lansing before finally leaving the city via bus for New Orleans. So he, he was leaving purposely. Um, so on August 15th, 1979, taking it back um, to that same day, um, after writing a suicide note, Egbert left his dormitory room at Case Hall and entered the university steam tunnels. He then consumed meth, 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 methaquilone, or what is more often known by its brand name, Quaalude, uh, oh. is used for inducing sleep in a hypnotic state or the other horrible ways the the Bill Cosby ways, oh. uh, intending to commit suicide. Oh. Uh, although he lived because it's really, it's really just going to put you out, you know, unless you take a huge dose of it. Um, after waking up the next day, he, he lived, uh, he went to hide out at a friend's house. Uh, and then there was a, uh, by his, in that same city, by his friend's house, Gen Con 12 was uh, being hosted there, which is apparently a, 
uh, one of the first conventions dedicated to tabletop gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, apparently at that at that convention, because it was smaller then, you know, there were people that reported to have seen James Dallas Egbert at the convention uh, because he was con- he was always at those cons. Um, but this was another thing. It was reported he was seen. It, you know, they, there was no real evidence if he was seen. Um, so then Egbert makes a second suicide attempt in New Orleans by consuming a cyanide com- compound, which also failed. Uh, which if you know anything about cyanide that's extremely painful you know he probably lost like bones or something you know and still survived you know like mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't have the details for that but you know like that's not yeah if you know anything about it you know it's like a super poison so um mm-hmm. so he then moved to morgan city louisiana and was employed as a roustabout after four days on the job egbert called william deer the guy investigating him and then revealed his location so Deer then traveled to Louisiana. Um, some people say it was Texas. Like you said, this is still like really loose. Um, and they found Egbert. Upon their meeting, Egbert asked Deer to conceal the truth of his story. Uh, apparently, William Deer agreed and released Egbert to the custody of his uncle, Marvin Gross. Uh, this was September 3rd, 1979. So this is like, yeah, several, several months later. Um, Egbert died later on of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on mm. August 6th, uh, 16th, 1980. Uh, in 1984, William Deere finally revealed Egbert's story uh, of what actually happened in The Dungeon Master, which is a book that he wrote. Um, so after, like I said, they hired the private investigator, William Deere, like he reported that there was more like those personal problems um, yeah. that were reasons for his suicide and the you know depression loneliness parental pressure drug addiction um and and according to deer difficulties with coming to terms with his own homosexuality oh which is you know this is also according to him you know he was he he was he was the investigator for the thing so you know that definitely gives him some credence you know um the idea of Dungeons and Dragon players acting out real life sessions in dangerous locations like the steam tunnels and losing touch with reality uh, became super ingrained into the cultural consciousness. Um, like we're talking about the satanic panic, you know, this is all just snowballing, you know, it's like, it's like what people are afraid of. It just kind of makes sense, you know? And this of course inspired books and movies such as what I was talking about, Mazes and Monsters, which is actually pretty good. It's actually pretty decent. Um, the perceived link between Egbert's disappearance and Dungeons and Dragons was one of several controversies linked to the game during the 80s. The publicity surrounding the Maces and Monsters novel and film heightened the public's unease regarding role-playing games. Uh, however, it, is also a, it also increased the sales of D&D game manuals considerably, adding to the game's success. For example, sales of the basic set rose dramatically. Right before the Steam Tunnel incident, the basic set might have sold 5,000 copies a month. By the end of 1979, it was trading over 30,000 copies a month. Wow. And it only went up from there. And that was literally almost the same year that it happened, you know. Um, another, uh, and also before I go on, like the, the movie kind of portrayed James Dallas Egbert as like, he literally, like I told you in the beginning, like that, that was all me just writing, watching the movie. It was like, he literally at some point in the film talks to his bird Merlin and says, I think I want to be remembered. So I'm going to kill myself in the tunnels type of thing. And I was like, we're taking a big liberty by saying that type of stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, you know, but this was like some mental issues that were seriously happening, you know, and like mental issues are constantly I mean, mental health is a huge problem, specifically today, you know, but it's always a huge problem. And it will be because we're constantly having to learn to diagnose new things. I was just reading earlier today about Robin Williams again and how they found out after doing like the further autopsy that he would had the worst Louis body dementia ever. Like it's like an extremely rare disease and he had a neurological disorder that was making him hallucinate. And he was lying oh to his family and friends because he didn't want them to know. You oh know? my God. But because it was so rare, even the doctors you know, thought it was Parkinson's and it wasn't, it was actually Lewy body dementia, which is, 
yeah, like I said, it's so rare, but it causes you to have hallucinations and all these oh my things. God. causes you to produce like 50% less um, melatonin than, than oh. serotonin, sorry. So it's like, you're always depressed, you know, you're constantly fighting it, you know, and like, but we don't know that. So it's like, we need to learn these things constantly. And it's like, rather than jumping the gun and thinking it's some demonic thing because i mean nowadays yeah. on this and of course we're gonna laugh because dungeons and dragons is like the most innocent thing you could possibly do it's great for your brain it's a fantasy game you know it's like something you should should be doing you know especially as a kid i think you know because i think indulging in your imagination is a good idea um so on that note the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255 and i think that's important to like you know, because that this kid did commit suicide, you know, and like whether or not this is what the problem is, you know, the, like mental health is an issue. If it's not an issue, there's always someone to call, like, you know, like it's never the answer. So like they just want to put that out there, you know. Um, but there's also like apparently a lot of other like the satanic panic involved, you know, um, the the Pritchard case uh, in 1988 during an investigation into his stepfather's murder. Uh, Christopher Wayne Pritchard told police that he and his friends had mapped the steam tunnels of North Carolina State University for the purposes of incorporating them into the Dungeons and Dragons role playing, you know, oh. but that's like another like weird case, but it's also like, like we were saying, like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, is like LARPing, you know, now that like you do it in realistic places, you know, and it's just fun to do, you know, but it's like, you're still incorporating, you know, things that are, that not aren't necessarily related you know yeah for that for that extent it's it's interesting but it's also like yeah it's it's really obvious that like people will do anything for a story you yeah. know and it's 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 kind of sad because this person was like going like they had to hire a private investigator to do the real work you know yeah it, the, the cops were going to go to whatever the media said yeah to yeah. so socialize it instead of look at because especially at that time it's much easier to be like oh let's look at dungeons and dragons and see how it's causing people to worship satan which is not true it's math and mm -hmm. strategy it's mm -hmm. i guess if you want to call that the devil instead of looking at the the fact that probably because the society didn't accept him for who he truly was which may have been a homosexual which was not okay to be at the time mm -hmm. that's going to make you hate yourself and feel depressed and that can add a lot to uh, your self-worth and may probably had a lot to do with why he was so depressed and was hurting himself and that it was much easier at the time to not look at that not pay attention to that let's look at this other thing that it's so obviously is not because it's just easier to to i guess accept then well, like i said like his yeah. mom went out on uh tv shows many times and talked about how her son got caught up in dungeons and dragons but that's like a mom is hurting because her son committed suicide and she doesn't understand and like and maybe someone yeah. takes their own life it is so hard to understand yeah from being yeah. from the outside yeah because and you're right this person you know and it's not coming from a place of you know it's not it maybe it is ignorance but it is mostly coming from a place of hurt you know and that's something like we need to remember is like the town in my story was hurting. It wasn't like they're coming from a place of, oh, we hate these teens who do satanic stuff. It was coming from a place of hurt and them trying to place that hurt on somewhere else and focus that onto something. It's much more, it's much easier to be angry than it is to be in pain, you know? Yeah. And that's really what it is. Yeah. You know, that's really what, a lot of this satanic panic was about, you know, and um, I think we should revisit this topic later on because there was so much more that happened in this yeah. era. And this is just very much the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of what happened in this era is bleeding into stuff that happened 
for much further along even into today you know like the fact that you know people today are still struggling with accepting people who are different and that you know things that aren't going to hurt you you know Mm -hmm. but it's different and it can be confusing and because we've been taught so much to be afraid of things that are different and confusing you know Mm-hmm. That it can, it's been, it's just very sad, you know. So yeah. Anyways, <laughs> here's to another sad episode <laughs> of my weird little podcast. Um, like and subscribe. <laughs> Rate and review. Yeah, everyone. Uh, also, shout out to Christina <laughs> because she listens. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll take that. <laughs> um, ooh. ooh. The end. <laughs>